This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and Right On with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. So you get to listen in for an hour where we delve into that wonderful world of writing and of books. Now, I feel very blessed and privileged to interview some amazing people. And recently, I had the pleasure of talking with Witi Ihumaira at the New Zealand Society of Authors Te Puni Kaituhi Aotearoa New Plymouth Roadshow. Now, Witi Ihumaira is one of New Zealand's best loved authors, and he's also the New Zealand Society of Authors President of Honour. He has a wealth of experience and so many stories about his writing. So for today's show, I'm going to be playing the first part of the talk that I had with him. And it's about the craft of writing. And it was a talk that I know I learned so much from and got so many great tips from. So it was such a great pleasure to hear from such a wonderful storyteller. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Witi Ihumaira is our President of Honour for the uh, New Zealand Society of Authors, Te Puni Aotearoa. And we're especially honoured with having you in this position um, as, as, as I think New Zealand's foremost storyteller, because you are a storyteller, um, but in that we are celebrating 50 years mm. since the first publication of Punamu Punamu, which was the um, first fiction book by a Māori writer in New Zealand um, produced, his short story collection. So we have this wealth of knowledge sitting here. and. Um, I'm sure in, in the course of the questions and the, what we're going to talk, you're going, you're going to learn a lot. But also, um, we're going to have time at the end for your questions, because we love to have questions. We want to know what you want to know. It's lovely to hear the variety around the room. Um, and I hope you'll go away, away today, because you know, writing sometimes feels like it's all about output, output, output. So it's lovely to come to something where you can just sort of wallow and have input, 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 learning from each other and also from... Um, um, Witi and our other people who are teaching here today. Rob, thank you very much. Well, let's crack on into um, finding out about the craft of writing. So quite a lot of what we're going to talk about is, is that actual craft of writing, um, as well as some stories as well, we hope. So first thing, um, Witi, can you please tell us Papawiti, um, five things that a writer needs to think about at the beginning of their career? <laughs> And it's great because we have a number of people in the room, you know, who are very much at the beginning of their career. Yes. Yeah. Well, kia ora, Vanda. Kia ora koutou, everybody. Well, Rob and I were just talking about this last night, and I think I might have surprised him by actually saying that, for me, the very first thing that I always felt was required by a writer was stamina. <laughs> Nothing to do with writing at all, just stamina. And I'm sure that David will, will, will say the same. Um, the second is that uh, you need to have an idea of yourself, an idea of what you want to be as a writer, who you're going to be writing for, do you have an audience, uh, what kind of, of uh, genre uh, you want to, to work in. And I think I might be right here, but David, you and I have been in the New Zealand Society of Authors for over 50 years. I think we need a memorial plaque on that. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so I have valued, uh, you know, always learning and learning and learning and coming to workshops. And so it's, it's about making sure that I'm always up to date with the latest techniques and technologies because the way that we wrote in the 1970s is so totally different from today. In those days, you wrote third person past. You didn't involve yourself in the writing and it was less memoir driven than it is today. So that... Um, I could never write the same way now because uh, the work would seem dated. So uh, it's always about keeping yourself uh, up to date. 
It's about having a methodology or a process. And uh, I've always had a particular process when it comes to novels. And because I'm Māori, um, I adopt a, a Māori process, which is similar to the Greek um, uh, structure for the novel. And that is that I will start my novel in summer. I will then take it through autumn and then take it through winter and then take it through spring. So if you do it like that, then that means that you can then define what is happening to your characters in summer. For instance, when everything is fine, the weather is wonderful, the, um, your characters are innocent, nothing has happened to them. And then you take them through autumn. And in autumn, things are starting to, you know, not, not um, being so well for them. Perhaps their husband is thinking of, of leaving um, their wife, um, or the wife is thinking of leaving uh, the husband. So choices are beginning to, to have to be made. And then in winter, I take my, my characters through, um, towards a cliff, and I throw them over that cliff <laughs> so that they... Um, so winter, or the third part of, of all of my novels, is a time of crisis for, for um, all of my characters. It's a time when the, um, the plot and the narrative begins to, uh, to, to go awry, um, and uh, the, the world starts to come apart. And then with spring, it's that world coming back together again. It's the character finding himself or herself again. Everything is coming right. It's that whole Shakespearean idea um, of, of um, your, your work reflecting the society and then the society reflecting um, who you are. And often I will, I will add on a prologue and an epilogue and in the epilogue, it will be the return of summer. So if you read The Whale Rider, for instance, that is exactly uh, what that structure is. Um, if you read Sky Dancer, it's exactly the same structure. And I call it the indigenous, the indigenous um, structure in my case. Uh, um, if it was a Shakespearean play, for instance, and I'm going on much too long, um, but if it was a Shakespearean play, and if I wanted to, to, to have it as a drama, it would end in winter. So it would start in summer. Sorry, it would end in winter, yeah. Um, if it was a comedy, then it would begin in, in summer or spring. So uh, it's very, very simple, and other people have adopted the same thing beforehand, before me. But um, I would never start even thinking about writing unless I had uh, done stretch exercises. So I don't know about any of you, but I hope that many of you go to the gym but in the gym, of course, you don't start a piece of work until you, until you have done some stretch exercises. So um, I've, ad I've adapted maybe around about 10 or 11 that I will do every day when I'm writing. And one of them is simple word association. So maybe I can ask you two in there just to say one word and you bounce off that word. So this is, this is something you do um, in, in, in the mornings. You start with a word. Okay, so when you can get those words moving automatically, sort of like then you know that you've warmed yourself sufficiently to then go into the writing process without having to think, because it's all about trying to get an unconscious drive going on or a subconscious drive. So then the next exercise that I do, and I usually do, with, do this with my kids in the mornings, they hate it. <laughs> but um, the three of you then, would you like to begin, the lady in the green, would you like to begin by saying, I went to the store and I saw, or something like that. Would you like to start? Between yeah. The, yeah, just one word each, between the three of you. <laughs> great, great. So, so, so what that does, because writing, of course, you just don't know what word is going to come next. And you just don't know where it's going to take you. So you have to get the words working in a sequence of some sort. So you're very, very good. I can see that you're a person who will, who will um, group things together and bring them to a finality. You know, you're always constantly thinking of, of where the sentence is being driven and at what point you can end it, which is very, very important at that micro level of writing. So shall we start have another three? You three. Instead of saying I, went she. <laughs> very good, very good. Now again, um, what I like about you is that you keep it rolling and you keep it unfolding and you keep it going which is what all novelists need. They need to be able to unfold, 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 because <laughs> writing is actually not a straight line um, 
um, impulse. Writing is, is, is this sort of action, is, is, is the circle. And each time you do the circle, you grab something from the previous circle and you bring it over into the next one. And then you keep on grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. And that is the way in which you achieve propulsion. So, as I say, I would never ever start my work in, uh, unless I, I take myself through stretch exercises and I do them every morning when I'm writing. And has this been always part of your, your work structure? I mean, when in your career did you, you sort of find this formula that worked for you? Um, the, the stretch exercises came when, and I was again talking to Rob about this, when I had reached um, book number four. Because with books numbers one, two, and three, you should really be able to rely on your own spontaneity and your own natural gifts. You don't really have to, to do too much except do that. But when you've reached book number four, then you've got to apply more wisdom to the way in which you create your work. And you've got to apply more thought and more intelligence to writing it so that it's not the same as the naturally induced work that you have done prior to that. So books numbers three, four, and five, and onwards are always the difficult ones because they're the ones in which um, you then have to begin to understand a little bit more about research. When I first began my first books, I didn't rely on research at all. I mean, I was just relying on my, my natural understanding of the Māori world, of Māori characters, of uh, Māori dilemmas, and I didn't need to you know, to do anything more than that. But as I then began to develop as a writer, because I think that all of us are writing a career, we're not just writing books. We should be thinking of writing a career. Uh, you, not, you should not just be thinking of writing the book that you're planning to complete next year. You should be thinking of the one that's coming after that and the one that's coming after that. So uh, I'm sure that um, David is, is exactly the same. I'm actually not here. I'm actually writing five years down the track. I've done the work for this year, I've done the work for next year, I've done the work for the year following that, and I have, and so I am now looking five years hence. At that stage I'll be 84, <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, I need to plan my time and I need to plan the books accordingly. So you, uh, you develop these techniques as you go along. It's the same as, 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 as ageing or maturing. So in my maturity, I'm having to apply more. For instance, um, there's something that I go around all the time saying to myself, how do you carve an elephant out of stone? How do you carve an elephant out of stone? <laughs> yes, well most people would carve an elephant. And that's what I used to do when I was young. But now what I do is I carve away everything that isn't the elephant. And then that leaves the elephant, which is a book, um, uh, standing by itself. And uh, it, it's to do with career management and understanding that with career management comes this requirement to just think a little bit more about your work and just be a little bit uh, uh, cleverer um, in your articulation um, of, of, of the words. And this is wonderful wisdom that has come to you over the years. As that lovely, brash young man <laughs> at the beginning of your career, um, getting your first book published, which must have been a struggle and a story in its own right, did you back then have thoughts of you know, writing as a career, or was it just something that you, at that time, needed to do? Well, I had tried everything else, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to be a teacher, but they wouldn't have me at training college. I tried to join the army, but the army uh, wouldn't have me. I tried to join the Gisborne City Council, but they already had their, their, their lot all for that year. I even tried to join um, the Gisborne radio station, but Derek Fox had, had beaten me to it, and he was their, their, um, their candidate for that year. So it was, it was actually by a whole um, lot of, 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 of doors closing uh, that eventually led me um, to, uh, to writing. But I had always, always loved writing. How many of you have actually loved writing since you were children? Yes, yes. So it was that love um, in the end that drove me to really trying to define for myself, why was it that nobody wanted me? You know, why, and what is it based on that exclusion 
because there were other exclusions, including, ra including racial exclusions that were happening. And um, I think that, that the universe was telling me something, and the universe was telling me that there was a job that I, I could do, and that was to um, articulate the, um, the lives of, of the Māori people around me. And so because I loved my grandmothers and my grandfathers, my mother and father, I decided that I would write about them. My mother, however, and this is something that you also have to understand, is that your family will not love you for being a writer. Uh, my mother said, why are you always um, picking on us? And why don't you write about rich people or people in magazines or, 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 or people with important lives? And I said to her, well, you and dad are the king and queen of my life. My brothers and sisters are the princes and princesses. And although you don't have any money, our culture has more richness than you think it has. And so that's what I've always tried to write. And as far as being important or significant, I've always felt that what I do is I try to find the significance in insignificant lives. So with writers, that's what we try and do. We, 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 we try not to generalise in our approaches. We try to recreate... Um, the psychic life of people, or the psychological life of people, or the inner life of people. Um, because that is the difference between private or personal record and public record. And that is where fiction can be such a different vehicle then to non-fiction and um, yes. telling stories that way. Well, I've always, I've always felt that um, fiction is... People can take a photograph, and what you see in the photograph is just the physical representation of that person. But a novel or a short story or, 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 or a poem can take you inside that person and show you more about that person than uh, the photograph will. Um, so I've always tried to find the dimensionality in our, in, in our lives and in our characters so that um, in the end, um, the work, the novel, the short story, or the poem, as long as it has a, dimension, a dimensionality, uh, then, that, um, is, uh, then that is really um, what is, is most important, mm -hmm. so that we begin to understand why it is that person is that way, or that story, when is it happening, how is it happening, uh, what are the stakes uh, for that person um, in, in, in their lives. And crisis, what, is, what are the crisis points in that person? Because often the strength of the character comes out when the writer, yourselves, give that person challenges to overcome. And that speaks to um, very much to thinking about the craft of being a writer. So um, can, we, well, can you talk about, say, five things that um, a writer really needs to think about when they're thinking about the craft of their writing when they commence their work, start their work? Well, the question that we all need to apply ourselves is, 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 is not what we're writing, but how we're going to write it. That's the biggest dilemma for the writer. Are we going to be writing it in first person, present, third person, past? Who is the person who's going to be taking the story through um, its various um, developments? Sometimes we might start off uh, with one character and then we... Uh, see somebody else like this, this, this girl coming, um, Kirsten's just coming through the door. So she will have a different perspective on this view room than we have of that part of the room. So again, it's from what perspective and from whose perspective um, the story should be told. And often I will start a, start a novel from the perspective of an older, old man. And then I will then change the perspective and give it to a young woman and the whole thing will change. How do you think it'll change? Why is it important to think of who's going to be the carrier of your short story or your novel? The young woman will um, not have the same degree of experience and may value different things. Yes, yes. Anybody else? A different world view. So for, for me, it's always because I, I know my world view. 
But part of the challenge, especially if we are writing for a younger generation, is to bring a younger generation um, character uh, into our story so that our story isn't always the same old story um, as the one that I would have told. So I always tell a younger, a younger generation like your generation that your role is actually to keep on refreshing the same story that your elders have told you or the same story that you read of mine perhaps at, uh, um, at, at, at school. It's no longer the, the short story that you should be reading or telling your children to read. You should be getting them to read um, in their own generation. Um, I'm fortunate that my work has, has continued to, 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 uh, you know, to be taught. Um, in fact, it's still being taught in Africa and also in Canada and in France and Russia as well. Um, so I'm really fortunate that I've, I've had that appeal. But it is your function to write about young women today or young men today um, or young children today. And that's why I'm so thrilled that many of you are writing for that age group. Um, I always think that um, starting a novel is difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, I heard somebody say that they're having a writer's block and so it's good to come back to this. Um, one of the things I learned was that um, you didn't always have to go through the front door. If you think of your, of your uh, book as a, as a house, you didn't have to go through the front door. What other ways can you get into a house? Through the window, through the back door, down the chimney. You have to try everything you possibly can uh, to, to be able to access the material inside. So that does not necessarily mean that you will start from the beginning of your work. You might part way through decide to come in through the back and back into it. Or you might start think when you look at it that you can come down from the top and find yourself in the middle of the sitting room and begin to write that scene. Or you can come up through the floorboards and uh, into, the, into the bathroom and you just have to keep on trying to find ways and if you apply these different ways of getting into your material, you won't have writer's block because you are constantly looking at your work and circling it. I always think um, as well that um, multidimensionality is so important. You might start by, by, by um, writing it almost as if it's a square like that. But as you continue to write it, what you do is you, that you create it so that it looks like a box. Or if it's a circle, you turn it into an orange. Or if it's a pyramid, sorry, if it's a, a triangle, you make it into a pyramid. And so the work that is, that, that is completed um, is, is that a multi-dimensional construct um, floating in six-dimensional space. <laughs> the other thing I like to think about too when I'm, when I'm, I'm thinking that way is to constantly spiral my work so that, for instance, each chapter, most people end their chapters like that. You know, it starts like that and it ends like that with a full stop and that's the end of the chapter. But instead of ending it at that chapter, what you do, how many of you do crochet? <coughs> you get a crochet hook and you hook the, that last sentence of that chapter and you hook it over to begin the next chapter. What happens when you do that? Pardon? Continuity. Continuity and, and instead, of, instead of stopping it at the end of that chapter, you're forcing the reader to begin the next chapter. And so that's a way of getting the reader to always think of what happens next. And it's a way of establishing tension um, in your work. You have, to, you, you have to engage yourself in all sorts of different techniques. And so fortunately, at this age, I'm able to do them unconsciously. But in the, in the early days, I used to have something in my bedroom or in my office, and it had all of these things. Research, which is three hours. Research, write, revise. So I would then say one third of the work, of my work is research. One third of it is write and then one third of it revised. And I wouldn't think of finishing my whole process, my whole writing process, until I had, had applied those, those three main principles to my work. And that was, at, that was at the beginning, you do that unconsciously now? 
It was unconscious in the beginning because in those days we were always taught about beginning, middle and end. Ah. You know, yes. um, but later, um, as, I, as I knew that I wanted to have a, um, a career um, that would be long and um, would be fresh all the time, I needed to find ways in which to keep, to, to keep the world vibrant and to, to keep um, the words vivacious. So there comes a time when I will look at, at the work and I will think to myself, so um, this work is too leaden. There's no, it has no flotation. And so how do you achieve flotation or buoyancy in your work if you believe that the words are weighing it down? What do you do? Right, we're going to have a little pause at this point and take a short music break, and then we'll be back to hear more from Witte Ihamira back soon. Lost for the minute, unnaturally weak, give in to your smile. I want to discover. What we need to each other
The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the University Bookshop. Well, let's continue on with my conversation that I recorded with Weti Ihamaira at the recent New Zealand Society of Authors Tipuni Takaituhi o Aotearoa New Plymouth Roadshow. How do you achieve flotation or buoyancy in your work if you believe that the words are weighing it down. What do you do? You take as much of those words out so that, you're, so that, the, so that uh, what remains will float. If it doesn't float, then it doesn't have that kind of buoyancy that will take the writer um, along at that particular level. They will sink down in the morass of detail, perhaps, that you have enjoyed um, making. So for me, I overwrite. Do any of you overwrite? Yes. I always think that the more material you have in your first draft, the better it is that you, you can work with it. If you start to edit it too soon, then you have nothing to work with in your second and third and fourth and fifth drafts. So the more material you have at the beginning, most of my, most of my first drafts are at least a third longer than they should be. And I deliberately understand that because then it, it allows me to go and it's kind of like an engineer, you know, I can then see what's wrong and then begin to, to tinker with it and then begin to um, develop it uh, the way it should be developed. So, um, yeah, so that's what I do. How do you learn to trust your critical eye? Um, and you keep your critical your... eye critical. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's, it's an interesting question because um, that can only come if you know the world that you're writing about. And your critical eye um, has got to uh, ensure consistency. To me, consistency is the most important thing in ensuring that that world um, makes sense. So part, if, if parts of that world make sense, well, then that must mean that I'm trying to apply too much pressure on it or I'm trying to apply too much pressure on these characters to do things that they would not normally do. So it has to be consistent within the world, it has to be consistent within their own actions, and it has to be consistent within their own gender. Um, often when I was teaching, um, I would often uh, try to pair the young boys in the class with a, with a, with a young girl or with a woman because um, in those days, I hope it's not the same now, this is only 15 years ago when I was teaching, um, boys had terrible, terrible attitudes towards young women. And so the only way I could get them to stop writing that way was to put them <laughs> close to a young woman who would actually tell them, well, you know, this is how young women feel in relationships. It's not necessarily sex we're after, like, you are, Brian, you know. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, it's something else. So um, often... Um, for instance, um, one of the main things that uh, writers tend to forget about are the politics of their characters. So if you are a woman and if you're a woman is, is, is a woman character, um, if your main character is a woman character, you have to think of that woman within her setting. And she, you must not make her act as if she was a man in that setting. Um, I once wrote a short story about... Um, um, now, I once had a, a, a friend in my class, a young, a young woman friend who was writing a, a story about a suicide. And she had um, this young boy in her class um, having a bath and then cutting his wrists. And that was his method of, of suicide. And it was a very, very interesting method. And so I said to her and the class, I told, told them, well, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. I can understand why you've chosen that, that way of suicide, but boys don't do that. And she said, oh, no, well, that's, that's the way that I would like it to be. And I said, no, boys get in the car and they aim it at a tree 
or else they you know, get in the car and they, 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 they crash it somewhere. And she got up and walked out the room and one of her friends said, well, that's how her brother, um, so, so, uh, brother um, committed suicide. So that consistency has to do with emotional truth. What is the emotional truth? Um, another question I, I ask myself in terms of that same question is, okay, so the moral compass, what is the moral compass of my book? Or what are the moral compasses of these characters? And if these moral compasses are not consistent, then um, no matter how beautiful it is, I always go for, go for the truth yeah. rather than the beauty and the expectation that I, as a writer, want to, um, want to show um, in the work. So talking about um, character and, and tying in all these things that you've talked about with um, the character and the lenses we um, view things through, for you, should a novel be character-driven or should it be the narrative, the story? Well, I'm sorry, folks, but you know, every novel is going to be different. There's no one way, you know. Every time you write a novel, you're back to the beginning and it's back to basics again. You're faced with a whole different set of characters. You're faced with a whole different set of situations. You're faced with a whole different set of dilemmas. Uh, you have to find a different symbol for your work. Um, you know, the moonstone, for instance, or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's again going back to those basics and reinventing that world and creating that world. And one of the things I do is, um, is I will uh, use scaffolding to help me to, um, um, to get to that point of understanding that you've just uh, referred to. In the old days, they used to apply a really exciting kind of scaffolding. If you, if you read books up to the 1920s, you will see that each chapter that they have, it will have in chapter one, and then there'll be around about four or five sentences, in which we get to know who Sophie is, in which Sophie meets Mr. Livingston, in which Mr. Livingston, unbeknown to Sophie, has a prostitute friend that he goes to see. Chapter two, in which Sophie discovers Mr. Livingston's secret. You know, so that's how I do my chapters, so that I know exactly where those chapters are going. That's the scaffolding of it. And then at the end of the book, I will then take all of that off so that the, the, um, the, the chapters float without the necessity for the reader to know what's in them. So if you are having um, a, a writer's block, I suggest that one of the ways that you can do, uh, get out of it is to use that sort of scaffolding and make sure that you, you know where your characters are going in terms of what's happening um, in each of those characters. Uh, the good thing about doing it that way is that your narrative drive will become something that you're always conscious of because you are consciously always planning that the novel will unfold in such a surprising way to the reader that they will come to their own understanding of these characters themselves without your having to tell them. So it's a way of making sure that you are showing the reader what these characters are like and what the story is like without telling them uh, what it is. It's a very, very difficult thing for um, a reader to, a writer to, um, to learn. And also um, the most important thing that I had to learn was tension. How do I maintain tension throughout the whole thing to make sure that um, it's tight, to make sure that um, if I'm using three or four historic strands like I did in The Matriarch, that the tension was always there so that people would be able to go from 1840 to 1970, back to 1840, back to 1970, and yet maintain the tension in structurally complicated work. And uh, we were talking, Michaela and I, about the complication of her particular novel, which has got three main, um, main characters, the three of them, 
in connection with each other, driving that story together. So she's going to have to, but, she, but she's, you know, she's a, a professional, and she'll do it. She will find a way of, of maintaining the tension so that parts of those don't sag. You'll be able to define for yourself where in your novel things are sagging. You'll be able to define it, or if you can't, then you need to get somebody, a, 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 you know, a, a literary doctor who can tell you where it's not working. <laughs> You're talking about um, the scaffolding and the structure that you put in place for your novels. Do you allow yourself the freedom to, if that scaffolding's just not quite working, just to bust it apart? And, or are you, once you get into that idea and that scaffolding of your work, quite um, stick to that? I trust the work, yeah. I trust the work. I trust the work to tell me um, when I'm going wrong. Um, but in the beginning, I used to not trust the work. So it is a journey. And this is why I keep on telling people that they should continue to write, because you know, if you've done it once and you can do it the second time, you can do it the third time, why bother to do it just once or twice or, or three times? Why not do it 14 times, 15 times, 16 times? Why not? Why not? By the time that you get to the 16th one, which I'm at now, the 16th novel, you know, it's, 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 it's becoming... You understand more about yourself. You understand about the license or the flexibility that you have uh, yourself. And you understand about trust, about trusting your characters more. And, yeah, there are times when I have um, completely thrown my characters over the cliff or I have gotten to... Um, to um, part three of the book, the, the winter part of the book, and then have realised I can stop this book here. I won't bother about the rest of it. And I have done that. So one can trust, one begins to trust more. Um, in the current book, I'm taking out the first three chapters. It's always the beginnings and the ends of the books that we can really tinker with, really. And um, I soon discovered that what I was doing um, after my, my first three books was that I was trying to set the scene with my first chapter when it wasn't really necessary. So from that point onwards, I've always made a habit of taking off the first chapters of all of my books, and if I can, taking off the final chapter of all of my books. Why would I do that? Yeah, Because life isn't like that. And not having a resolution is good. You know, to, you know, I mean, often your characters don't have resolutions in their lives. Or finding another character who will come in from the sides and then completely create or add a different dimension to the book that it's never had before. Uh, so, and I don't believe now that settings, that, that people need to be put into a setting anymore. So none of my books have, have that first chapter um, setting saying, um, you know, what New Plymouth looks like, for instance. Um, you talked about having a, uh, a literary doctor. Um, one of the things we talked about in Wellington was um, you know, your support network of your... You called them your cycle buddies, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if anything, you should go away from this meeting with at least two other people that you will be in constant contact with. Uh, writing buddies. Um, people that you can talk to. One of mine is Fiona Kidman, who's a good friend of David's and I. And I remember Fiona rang me up one day and she said, oh, I don't think my book's working. And I said, send it to me. So she sent it to me and I said, you know, Fiona, it's really, it's fine as it is. But why don't you change it from first person present into third person past? So why don't you try writing the first um, two chapters in uh, third person past? And she tried it. And it, uh, it meant having to write it in a different way, same book. And then she came back to me and, she, and then she said, so I've written it in the third person past, and she said, but I don't like it. And I said, well, then go back to your first person present because what you've done is that you've tried another option. And sometimes you really have to try various options before you can be convinced yourself that your first original option um, is the same. So second draft and third draft are always your opportunities to try those different options. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to pause the interview with Witte Amira at this point, and I hope you really enjoyed listening to um, the way that master storyteller crafts his work. I know I learned so much from being there within that audience and, and listening to him. So that is the show for this month, um, and I very much hope that you did enjoy listening to Witte Amira. And I'm going to play the remainder of his um, korero with me in, later on in the months ahead. So thank you so much for listening in today and do join us again next month um, where we get to have another hour wallowing in that wonderful world of books and writing. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading. If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, here are some ways to get help. The best person to talk to is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you're someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. need to talk? Call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 354. Youthline 0800 or text 234 between 8am or midnight. Depression Helpline 0800 111 757 Samaritans 0800 
university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.